why emerging markets are such a big deal, and what the heck they are, how emotional investing may be a good thing, and basic retirement information you may be getting wrong. This is Your Money, Your Wealth. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, investor optimism is at a 17-year high with the Trump effect in emerging markets, but what does that really mean? Joe explains how being emotionally invested in your portfolio may serve you better in the long run, and six basic retirement questions most Americans can't get right. Now, here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Yes, we are back again. Thanks a lot for checking us out. Hey, um, investor optimism, highest since the year 2000. Oh, really? 17 okay. years, Alan. Okay, that's interesting. And of course, we know that was right before the dot-com bust. 2000 through 2002 was the worst bear market we saw since the Great Depression. Right. And then we saw 2008. And that was even worse. So right well, before that, so 2000, right? Everyone's super happy. Yeah, it was. That's when it was the new economy in the U.S. And the, markets. The old, the old metrics don't work anymore. Warren Buffett's all washed up. He doesn't know how the new market works, new economy works. Yeah, because he didn't really like the tech bubble. Right. Turned out he was right. Yeah. <laughs> so 2000 through 2010, uh, the U.S. markets, um, if you look at the S&P 500, was down around what nine percent. Yeah. Right. So you started with a million bucks. Ten years later, if you were fully invested for that ten-year period, you had nine hundred thousand dollars. If you were fully invested in the U.S. market in that 10-year period. 10 years, S&P 500. So they called it the, the lost decade. Right, which, I mean, that's that would be a normal, that'd be kind of a cool term to call it, because that's what it seemed like, right? Right. So right before the lost decade, that's when optimism was at its best. Got it. And so we are once again... Are you um, predicting another lost decade? No, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> predicting anything at all. But okay. I think I talked about this a little bit last week, is that there's a lot of overconfidence right now going on in the overall markets. And, and not necessarily the markets themselves, but people that are investing in the markets, just the average everyday Joe. And no pun intended there, but <laughs> because, well, let, let's take a look um, at what the market did okay. for the quarter. Last quarter, huh? All right. So Q- Q1, Q1 2017. 2017. Uh, the U.S. stock market was up 5.74%. International developed stocks were up 6.8%. Wow, okay. Emerging markets were up 11.4%. In one quarter. In one quarter. How about that? One quarter. And then global real estate was up 1.4%. Speaking of best quarters, right? And I think when we had this email question last week about an individual that was trying to get 40% rates of return. Yeah. And I'm... Uh, unfortunately, that's very difficult to do, 40%. Yeah. But I guess if you invest in emerging market stocks and they continue to do 11% per, per quarter, quarter that's, you're, over that's, 40%. you're over 40%. And I think that's exactly what I said. I said, if you want a really high-octane portfolio, here's what you do. right? You invest in emerging markets, um, value, small value. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. And over the long term, it, it will likely, not guarantee it, but it'll likely outperform other asset classes. And by long term, I mean a decade. I mean, this could take years for this to kind of show. But, Joe, I mean, the problem with that is you could lose 50%, 70% in one year with an asset class like that. So if you break it down, um, because the highest right was back in 2009, the best quarter ever for emerging markets.
markets were back in 2009, they were up 34.7 percent in a quarter. In a quarter, okay. But also the worst quarter was uh, Q4 of 2008. Okay, was down 27.6 percent. I see. In the okay. quarter. In the quarter, yeah. <laughs> These are big numbers for huge three, swings. For three month period. Huge swings. And so if if you break down emerging markets, if you really want to get technical here, Al, because I know you're you're really into these numbers. <laughs> well, I am an accountant. Well, so. emerging markets is about 11 percent of the global market capitalization. 11 percent. Really? It's I wouldn't have even thought it was that high. 5.1 trillion. Okay. All right. And so if you look at value stocks in emerging markets, uh, was up 10 percent. Large cap growth was up 11 percent, uh, but small was up 13 percent. Okay. Right. So that kind of carried the flag there for emerging markets. Do you uh, do you think how many people do you think know what an emerging market is? Probably not too many, Joe. Well, can you name a couple emerging markets? Yeah, I would say uh, India, Brazil, China, to name a few. India, Poland, Chile, Korea, uh, Mexico, Taiwan, China, Brazil, Turkey, Malaysia. Thailand, Philippines, Czech Republic—you know things like that. Egypt, right. south of uh, South Africa, okay. um, Greece, Russia. Yeah. So those are all emerging markets. Emerging I would markets. think yeah. Russia would be a developed country, but it's not. It's an emerging. Well, because you know why? It's because capitalism is new. Ah, uh, that's see, that's why you're here, buddy. <laughs> because they were what communists. Yes. Right, <laughs> and that's a little different system. Oh, this was something interesting. If you really want to get um, in the weeds here, guess what the top um, currency was performer um, over the dollar over the last quarter? Over, over the dollar. Uh, let's see. Uh... Yeah, you're not going to guess it. It's our neighbor, Mexico. Oh, okay. Right? I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. yeah. The peso was up. Yeah. So, uh, all in all, it was a really good quarter. Um, so, again, the U.S. stock market was up about 6%. Okay, so that's for the quarter. That's really good. Yeah, and we always talk about global diversification, and uh, I think there's a lot of home bias when it comes to someone constructing their overall portfolios. Yeah, because we live in America, we know more about America than other countries. Sure, but I think you're, you're you're missing out on a lot of return by having a globally diversified portfolio, just as this last quarter shows. Right, right. As you know, international stocks were up almost seven percent, and again, emerging markets were up about eleven and a half. So a lot of things happened over the quarter. You know, we had this Trump effect. You know, Donald Trump was, you know, now our new president. But then so, but everyone was still talking about the U.S., not necessarily what's going on around the globe. So. True. Yeah, good point. And I think going back to your story about the last decade, you look at international stocks and emerging markets over that same 10-year period, they did rather well. And if you had a globally diversified portfolio from 2000 to 2010, maybe 60% in stocks, you probably you probably got 5 or 6% compounded, which is a lot better than losing 10%. Right. And then, so I guess going back to this um, op- Optimism in the overall markets. If we just take a look at over the past year, um, you know, if you take a look at the the total U.S. stock market uh, for the past year, it's up 18 percent. Uh, large cap is up 17 percent. Large cap value is up 19 percent. Large cap growth up 15 percent. Small cap is up 26 percent. Small cap values up 29 percent. 29. Yeah. I mean, so these are huge returns that we're seeing over the past year. Right. So I'm not saying that we're going to see another lost decade. 
but you have to take a look at your overall portfolio, I think, and it might be a good time to kind of say, all right, well, here, how much risk am I actually taking on in the overall portfolio? Because no one loves diversification when the market goes up. Right. right. You don't want to be in bonds when the market's going up. Of course, I up. hate bonds. Why right. would I ever want to invest in bonds? Look at this big track record. Right. But how many of you would have been happy to have you know a good chunk of your money in bonds you know, when the market dropped 20 30 40%? Right. So you have to take a look at kind of how the market works is that it goes down a lot quicker than it goes up in a sense of getting your money back. I mean, you see gyrations, right? Just like emerging markets was down 27% a quarter, and on two quarters later, it was up 36%. And you would think, all right, well, no big deal. I probably have my money back. Well, it's, it, it, the, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Because if you lose 50% of your money, you need 100% rate of return. Yeah, and that's hard to grasp until you think of the math. You got you got a hundred thousand, it goes down fifty percent, so now you got fifty thousand. To get back to a hundred, you, you gotta get a hundred percent. You gotta double your money from fifty thousand back to a hundred. Right. You know, and then so the lower volatility that you have, the recovery time is that much shorter. So that's a fifty percent drop. Let's say if you go to a thirty percent drop. So now I lost thirty percent of the overall portfolio because I'm a hundred percent stocks. Well, all right, well that's great. I don't need a sixty percent rate of return if I lost thirty. Now I need a forty four percent rate of return. And so if you lose ten percent, you know, you probably need twelve percent to get back to right. even. So when you approach retirement, you wanna take a look at the volatility of the overall portfolio. Because here's what I can show you, Al. I can say, all right, I have two portfolios that you can invest in, Portfolio A and Portfolio B. Right? And what do you think most people want to know about Portfolio A and Portfolio B? Well, they want to know what's the rate of return. Absolutely, right? So let's say Portfolio A over the last 10 years did 8%. Portfolio B's done 6%. I want A. You want A. Of course you want A. But <laughs> it's a you're better, missing it's a better that's, one. That's only half the story, yeah, right? It's right. only half the story. Because there's risk associated with getting that 8%. So you have to take a look at how much risk that you're taking to get the 8% versus how much risk that you're taking to get the 6%. If you're taking half the risk to get the 6% rate of return, now which is a more optimal portfolio to own? Yeah, especially when it's your retirement nest egg. Yeah, of course, if you're approaching retirement. But you have to take a look at the risk and return relationship because a lot of portfolios are not necessarily equipped or efficient. Right? They're taking on way too much risk. And for that risk, they should be achieving a lot higher expected return, but they're not because of how that portfolio is constructed. Investor optimism reached a 17-year high with the Trump effect, but who knows what's ahead? Larry Swedro's book, Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, offers bedrock investing principles that can help you profit in today's shaky markets. And right now, it's available for free to Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. Learn how to think like Warren Buffett and build a well-designed portfolio based on solid evidence and your highest interests. Playing the Winner's Game by Larry Swedro with a forward by by Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. Talking about investor optimism, it's at its highest since 2000, uh, which is good. I like optimism. Yeah, I do too. I'm an optimistic person myself. Yeah, index gained 30 points this quarter to 126. The highest was um, 130. That was back in November of 2000, right towards the end of the dot-com bust. I'm not saying that we're going to receive another dot-com bust, but more information is better when you make investment decisions. Sure, right. And let's say th- this, Al. We see people that are very emotional towards their investments. 
And then you see some people that are not very emotional towards their investments. And what would you say would be better? Well, uh, from from history, the ones that aren't emotional actually do better because they they let the portfolios do what they're supposed to do. The emotions kind of force you to do they they tell you to do the wrong things. But I don't I don't actually believe that is true. Okay, what do you believe? Because if you take a look at Dalbar studies, right? So let's say I'm not emotional at all towards my investments, but the market produces X and I'm going to produce Y, which is always going to be significantly less than the market. Right. Would you agree with that statement? Yes, I do. Right. So if I'm not emotional towards my investments, so what am I doing with my investments when the market goes up or down? I'm buying and selling at the wrong time. Well, I think that's when you are emotional. Okay, all right. So how about more personal? Maybe I used the wrong word. Because we ran into an individual, and we run into a lot of individuals that have individual stocks, and they have a very personal relationship with that individual stock. Would you agree with that? Yes, I sure do. Right? And so if you ask that person, hey, you should probably sell this stock, what would they usually tell us? Uh, Almost always, no. This has been such a great stock for me. So this individual bought the stock, I don't know, probably for a couple hundred thousand dollars, what, maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, and it's done well. And it's worth like almost $3 million it's today. It's in the millions, right? And you probably um, have a device that you use, <laughs> that you call people with. The company it, starts with the letter A. Yeah, and it has a little bite out of the fruit. <laughs> Got it. So right? You're, all right, we're, I'm with you now. So, you know, let's say if, if someone works for their overall organization, right? We see that highly concentrated positions in their company that they work for. Right. Uh, you see highly concentrated positions in maybe the area that they live in, such as, you know, we live here in San Diego. We see a lot of individuals that had huge, large concentration in Qualcomm stock. If you go to Atlanta, you see a lot of people with large concentrations of Coca-Cola. And so there's this personal, emotional relationship with that particular investment. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. If it wasn't a concentrated position, if you talk about an index fund, You know, Russell 2000. Woo! I'm really, you know, emotionally engaged with the Russell 2000. No, you're not. You're like, what the hell's a Russell 2000? (laughs) Or the S&P 500. People don't really know what stocks are in the S&P 500. Sure. Or the Dow Jones, right? You hear these other terminology, and it's like, okay, well, no, you know, the S&P is going down, so I'm going to sell it. But if if I have Apple, and I love Apple, and if it goes down, am I going to sell it? No. Probably not. No, because you have a you have personal attachment to it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so going back to Dr. Crosby, Daniel Crosby, he's a behavioral finance uh, PhD. And he was saying, and I, I have two sides to this, right? If you come up with investments and maybe you create like an, an exchange traded fund or a mutual fund that someone has passion around, feeding the homeless, let's say. Okay. Right. So then you can purchase all the stocks that companies that would, you know, be involved in doing something like this. You know, the freight companies. You know, the the farm land, or you know, the list goes on and on of how, you know, food gets to someone's table. Sure. You can kind of back that up, and then or or women's rights or whatever you're passionate about, and all of a sudden they had an investment with that. You know, that was diversified, if you will. Do you think people would say, all right, well, here I can sell my investments that is engaged in women's rights or feeding the homeless or whatever passion that you have versus the Russell 2000. Yeah, no, they'd stick with what they're passionate about. Sure, right? So I think there's got to be a better way to educate individuals on what they're actually holding to get maybe more of a personal tie because we know 
if someone has a diversified portfolio and they hold it for the long term, they're going to be significantly better off unless they have a, you know, that emotion, the fear and the greed come into play. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think it's uh, certainly we all know that if you buy into a stock or a company and it does rather well, you will beat the market, right? But the probabilities of that are, it's difficult. It's difficult to find that next Apple stock. That's the problem, right? And especially, Joe, I would say this. When you get to retirement age, and let's just say you made all your money in Apple stock, great. But now at this point, do you want to still have your whole retirement hinged on a company that who knows what Apple's going to be doing 30 years from now? But if I love Apple, I just ignored you. Yeah, I know, right? You know what I mean? It's like, I I don't care what you're saying. I probably heard it, but you don't know what the hell you're talking talking about yeah. your CPA uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know uh, that, yeah because I, I know. we get that that's such a, a, a tight personal relationship yeah, with it. You're, you're right about that you know then you hear the other advisors and brokers and things like oh well you know Enron I mean how many times have you heard that stupid analogy uh, yeah, all the time oh my yeah. god you know? and, and actually I'm not I'm, I would never predict that Apple's gonna go away but it can it still keep performing at that same level for the next several decades I, I don't know right yeah I and don't know either that, but, I mean I guess that's that's the issue right. is that, all right, well, I don't know if one particular company is going to continue to p- perform at the level that they perform at, right. but I could probably have a higher probability guess to say, well, 500 big, large, strong companies in the U.S. or internationally or even emerging markets as a collective whole, right. do I think that those companies are going to continue to perform? I, I think we both agree, yes, we would have a stronger pro- probability of that. Yeah, I think that's the key word, probabilities. And you know what? When you're younger and you want to take some of your assets and, and go for a few stocks and try to make some money, I mean, if you want to, go for it. But at least in my view, you get into your 50s and 60s and you built a certain nest egg, you want to increase your probability that it's going to last over time. Yeah, it's because we're twice as fearful to lose money than we are to gain money. Right. But the problem is right now is that we're so optimistic of what's going to happen in the market because yes. we've had such a huge bull run since 2009. Yeah, so we get this overconfidence bias. Right. Right. And which uh, isn't necessarily our friend. And and sometimes, not always, uh, sometimes we've seen where a young person makes a lot of money in a stock and they think, well, this is easy. And they're overconfident. And then after that, <laughs> they don't do so well. Right. It almost would have been better had they lost, lost money, money up front. And then it's like, OK, there's got to be a better way to do this. Exactly. Right. Because the, the best investment you can possibly own is what? One individual stock. Right. The worst investment you can possibly own is one individual stock. Right. So the higher probability of success is really what we're all about. We want to keep it boring, right? But we try to, you know, keep it light. Sure. But your investment should be boring, you know? Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, I've got an article here. This is uh, Leon Cooperman. He's a billionaire hedge fund manager, and he's defending his industry, which hedge funds have not done very well over the last several years. And he's saying that uh, passive management is not how famed investors have built their fortunes. And I would agree with that. 100%. I mean, if if you aspire to be a billionaire, you got to take all kinds of crazy risks. risks. Yeah. Now, for the rest of us that want more predictability, I I would take this statement and throw it in the garbage can. I I think we want to make sure that our nest egg is going to be there for us. Right. True wealth is built 
by owning, and owning could be a fractional ownership of a company stock. But yeah, if you want to be a billionaire, the billionaires they own their own companies, right? Right, and then they own multiple companies, and, and then they they do they're they're successful, and then they start investing as an angel investor or a venture capitalist. Got it. And so they just it's charting very risky, but some of those hit, and they keep parlaying their future. Right, because it's like okay, well here that's a very risky you know proposition you have. I want seventy percent of your company. So if it hits, I'm going to bank. Yes, If it doesn't, well, I'm hedging my bets. Right. Stress test your investments. You may be taking more risk than you realize. Find out your risk number with our risk factor tool at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Make sure your portfolio aligns with your investment goals and expectations. Identify how much risk is acceptable to you and compare it with the amount of risk you're currently taking in your portfolio. Together, we can take the guesswork out of your financial future. To find your risk number, just visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com. I was, just for fun, I was, uh, I put in our, our, uh, our podcast, uh, on our show, Your Money, Your Wealth, and uh, and then the word podcast. I wanted to see if it appeared on anything. And there's the, you get a few, you know, financial planning, you know, top ten. We haven't hit that yet, but <laughs> I, bottom I did, ten. I did find. <laughs> I found one that said top 120. All right, and we were in it. Okay, yeah. So we're 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 and we're up and coming. Hey, we are up and comers. <laughs> No, we have to disclose exactly what was that list, and that means nothing about the performance of anything that we discuss. Yeah, and the right. list does not mean that Al and I know anything <laughs> what we're talking about. Yes, uh, Danny Martin, compliance officer. We're trying to do this right. Yeah, clean up your act, there, Colpine. So I, I got a, I have a quiz for you, Joe. All right, Let's uh, see if this, I can pass. This is from the American College. Um, uh, and this is the Center for Retirement Income. And so there's six uh, basic retirement questions, and most Americans cannot get these right. So let's see how you do. All right. If you had a well-diversified portfolio of 50% stocks and 50% bonds, mm-hmm. that's worth $100,000. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. At retirement, based upon historical returns in the U.S., the most you could afford to withdraw each year is about... X plus inflation each year to have a 95% chance your assets will live for 30 years. And this is multiple choice. You got 100,000. Can you draw 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, 8,000? Well, you could pull out 2,000. You have a, probably 100% yeah, probability. Yeah, that, that would be real safe. And then 4,000 is probably the correct answer, yeah, a 4% is, distribution rate. It, it is the correct answer. And, of course, that 4% distribution rate rule, or 4% rule, as they call it, that's been around for decades. And that's... Building. Yeah, it's not perfect. It, there's not Some even, people can do more, some people way less, depending upon your circumstances. But your at least age, it, your portfolio. Yeah, at least it gives you an idea. Uh, and, Joe, it's interesting that a lot of the um, participants in this this quiz thought that they could they could withdraw somewhere between seven or eight uh, percent of their portfolio because the stock market has earned that or more and the problem with that kind of thinking is the stock market does not go up in a straight line right that's one problem the second problem is you got to keep some money in there for growth otherwise you, you don't keep up with inflation if, if the market earns five and you pull out five every single year you're taking a pay cut because goods and services are costing more you know I teach a lot of retirement uh, planning courses um, you know to it's adult education. And every time I go through that 4% distribution rule, right? Yeah. And say you have a million dollars, 
Right. And then I ask, how much do you think that you can pull out of a million dollars? Because a million dollars, that means you're rich. Yeah, right. That means you are one percenter. Right. And then it's like and you you get answers all over the board. Hundred thousand bucks, I don't know, at least ninety, eighty. Right. And then I say, you don't want to pull out any more than forty. Forty's even pushing it. Right. What? <laughs> You're kidding me. Yeah, I, right. You're, right. Uh, you're, you're, no, you're you don't nuts. know what the hell you're talking I about. I live off 100000 a year. Stock I markets a, earn 10% I over the last I got a million dollars, Joe. Right. I'm going to live off hundred grand a year. All right, well, then have a good 10 years. Right. You're done. <laughs> Maybe you get 15, but yeah, something like that. Here's the next one. A 25% negative single-year return. So the, your portfolio goes down 25%. Okay. Uh, in your retirement portfolio would have the biggest impact on long-term retirement security if it occurs 15 years prior to retirement, at retirement, 15 years after retirement begins, or the timing doesn't matter. The timing absolutely does matter. Yes. And it would be right at retirement. You bet. You bet. Unfortunately, there I guess there's a bit of luck in, involved. If you if you retire and the market goes down 50, like let's say you retired in what, 2008, the market went down 50% ish over 18 month period then all of a sudden you're you're in a kind of a tough spot and of course that's why we talk on this show all the time about you want to have growth in your retirement portfolio but you want to have a lot of safety because markets do correct and sometimes it's rather violent and it's quick right i mean if you're pulling money out so again we used this earlier in the show if you lose 50 percent of your assets and i i hate using that because it's like what's the odds of someone losing 50 percent unless they are in one individual security if you're in a globally diversified portfolio it's very unlikely it's very very unlikely to lose 50 percent because you have some bonds you have some stocks international and so on and uh, you know the whole fear selling drives me nuts too when you hear some of these other radio shows and podcasts they always go back to 2000 eight losing 50 percent so no, no offense to you al since you just used that reference but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but right if you lose 50 percent, you need a 100 percent rate of return yeah right but if you're pulling money out you're going to lead a lot more than that because if you're pulling the four percent out now you're down 54 percent. right that's right yeah so yeah that's uh and and so we sequence of returns is what we call this risk and and so make sure if you're retiring you have a portfolio that yeah has some growth in it but has a lot of uh, safety in it so that you can weather these storms. This here's this question. This is a great question, and it's you're gonna have to think about it a little bit. So I'll say it, and then I'll come back to it. So which of the following strategies is least likely to improve retirement security? So least likely. Which so, what, 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 what? One more time. Sorry. Which, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. Which which? I forgot you were giving me a quiz. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which which of the following strategies is least likely to improve retirement security? Okay. So, there's three things that can improve your retirement, but one of these does a worse w- job. One of these kids is yes, doing not, not his as own good thing. as the other. Now here's the first one: saving an additional three percent of salary in five years prior to retirement. Okay. Obviously, it's going to help. Sure. Right? Or deferring social... Who's sec- taking the quiz, Clopine? You. Okay. All yeah, right. yeah no, you're taking it. answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just telling, explaining <laughs> it to you, because I know you'll say, read it again. Um, the second one is deferring Social Security benefits for two years longer than originally planned, or working for two more years past the planned retirement date. So one of these doesn't is not as effective. Saving 3%, extra 3% of your salary for five years prior to retirement... Deferring Social Security benefits for two years or working two years longer. Or the fourth one is don't know. 
<laughs> well, let's let's map this out. Okay. All right. So let's say I'm saving money. I'm not sure how much money that I'm saving or how much money that I have. Yes. But if I save an, an additional 3% for five years prior to my retirement date, then I retire and I start taking distributions. Right. That's one. But then the second one is that I still have this retirement date, but now I'm not going to retire on that date. But I didn't save that 3%, so I'm going to push out my social – or I'm going to – Wait to take my social security. Yeah, for right? a couple of years. For mm-hmm. a couple of years. So it depends on what, 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 what is it? Full retirement age, because at full retirement age, each year that you wait, then you get an eight percent delayed retirement credit. Right. right. So does the two years of eight percent delayed retirement credit match the three percent savings for the first five years, or the last one was you delay your retirement altogether? You're not going to save, but automatically doesn't that already include B? Because if I'm going to push my, or does it say I'm taking I mean, my this, social security? These are all meant to be mutually exclusive. But I'll help you a little bit. So uh, so the 3% of salary, so that would be an extra 15% of salary that you saved, mm-hmm. right? If you work two more years, you got 100% of salary for two years. Right. So the math works way better that way. If I don't... Right. If well, I, well, if, if I save, if, if I'm not taking e- money out... Even if you don't save, you're not taking money right. out of your portfolio, okay? And then the other one working past, you know, Social Security, say, you know, waiting on Social Security, well, if it's at 8% or even if it's before full retirement age, it's a 6, 6.5% I'm going to say all of the above. No, they all, they all improve, but oh. but one is not as effective. So, delaying your retirement? Uh, no, it's the 3% salary because... because the, so No, del- because I'm delaying my retirement, I'm going to get both benefits. I know, it's th- but the question is, which is least likely? That's what you weren't listening <laughs> to. That's a stupid question. <laughs> I knew I was going to have to explain it about 10 times. Well, all right. If I delay my retirement, I'm not taking money from my portfolio. This is good. Yeah. And then I'm also increasing my Social Security by 8% per year, which is also good. I'm reducing yes. my life expectancy by two years, which is also good. What else? How else can I? I'm still saving into my 401k for those two years. Yeah. That's got to add up better than me just increasing my savings for five years. That's what I'm. That's what I said. Oh. Yeah, let's see. Oh, so I misunderstood what the hell yeah, you're talking right. about. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Good thing that's, I redeemed myself there. That's a, you got the right answer. Just, <laughs> just I mean, the you had the right thinking. <laughs> yes, that's that's my life. <laughs> Your logic was right, but you just have to listen to the question. Oh, I got it. Got yeah. it. It's tough, Al. Sometimes I know. it's yeah. like you're an accountant because I'm I, listening, and it's like I, it puts me to sleep. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get that tax I, chat. Going. I get that. I understand that. So a single person who's likely to live to age ninety is generally going to be better off claiming Social Security benefits at 62, 66, 70, or 75. 70. Don't wait until after 70. That's stupid. Why, why not? Because you don't get an increase in benefit. You're just you, you're leaving benefits on the table. Yes, you are. Right. Okay. That's that's right. Now, this is another easy one. Converting the, a portion of traditional IRA to Roth IRA is a good idea if... Okay. In the low are tax bracket. You with me so far? Yes, I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> You have a big tax deduction, and your marginal tax rate is lower than normal. That sounds like a good one. Yeah, that's true. All right. You have more taxable income than usual, and your marginal tax rate is higher. That would be false. Correct. The value of your the assets in your IRA have remained the same for 10 years. That has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> Just and then, <laughs> and then D is don't know. Well, Did the person that write this pass this stupid thing? I don't know. I, I just know that uh, not a lot of Americans passed it, and they don't really say how many they got right or wrong. But uh, we're blowing up the clock here, bud. I know. 
<laughs> he doesn't care. He's a CPA. I like, I like the quiz. When it comes to planning for retirement, what you have now versus what you actually need are two entirely different things. Do you know how much money you'll need in retirement? Do you have a plan to achieve your retirement goals? Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com to sign up for your free financial assessment and find out if you're on the right track. There are so many things to think about. Income, risk, asset allocation, inflation, taxes, social security, healthcare, Medicare, long-term care. The list goes on and on. Talk to a professional. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. That's yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click the free assessment button to find out if you're on track. Did I tell you that I got uh, interviewed um, recently for all my successes? No, I hadn't heard about that. Yes. By who? Your mother? No, it was my, my cousin. <laughs> I was in the Annadale uh, Gazette. Oh, good. Yes. She, I'm, I'm the most successful person she knows. You got it. Yeah. Yep. And there's 208 people. This is in, in Minnesota? Yeah. Yeah, got it. 208 people population. <laughs> so, well, that's pretty good. She's you're, graduating. You're in the top half a percent. She's like, you're the most successful person. I need to write a little thesis on you. Right. Okay. It's like, all right, honey. Very good. Yeah. So I talked about my, my career. Did you know my uh, financial planning career started... And low-income housing in Atlanta, Georgia. No, I didn't know. I knew it was Atlanta, but I didn't know it was low-income housing. Oh, yeah. I lived in low-income housing. Yeah. 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 I got it. Yeah. <laughs> what? Because you don't make anything when I, you start. Well, no. I wasn't even in the business. Ah. So you, I, had, you had no money. You just got through college. Uh, yeah. I originally from Minnesota. And so um, for any of you that are from Minnesota or been to Minnesota, right, it's a great place to be from. Got it. Not necessarily live. So and, and, I was and, you know, freezing my, you know. You know, the good thing to... about that is you get those good Midwest values. I do. Have people good... appreciate that. Yes, they do. We hear that every week, don't we? Yeah. Joe, you're a Midwesterner. I trust you. That's right. Um, so I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of the cold. Yeah. So I moved to Florida, and I got my finance degree from the University of Florida. And I graduated, I don't even know, 1997, 1998. I forget what year it was. Uh, something like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so I was dating my college sweetheart, and okay. she was the weather girl for uh, University of Florida. Oh, they had their own You know, TV they had their own TV yeah, station? Got it, got yeah. It. Yeah, okay, good. She, she was the weather girl. And she would say, yeah, it might rain today. Yeah, right. It's, it's Florida. <laughs> it's Florida. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit muggy. <laughs> so she was really good at her job. Yeah, right. And so Always I graduated right. a year before her, or not a year, a semester, a semester. Right. And so she was from Florida. I'm from Minnesota. I'm like, well, I'm not going to move back to Minnesota. And she's like, well, let's move to Atlanta. Okay. Right? I was like, okay, let's move to Atlanta. So I went up there first, you know, scoped the land. Yeah. And right. I'm not, I don't have a job. I just got out of college. I was a bartender in college. I paid my way through college, yeah. basically. That's a, that's a great story right there. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, stu- no I had about, yeah, I had about maybe 10,000 bucks. Okay. Of debt. Um, and paid yeah, that of off debt. right away. Yeah. Because well, yeah, when I left Minnesota, the folks were like, cut off. <laughs> You should go to this nice state school. Didn't your dad say if you, if you leave Minnesota, we're not paying a dime? Yes, we're not paying a dime. Yeah. They wanted me to go like to the Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever. Oh, yeah. I get these pamphlets very, all over the place. Very disappointing. Yes, <laughs> I was. Joe Anderson. <laughs> yeah, because I was from a military family. Right. So I moved to Florida, right? Then I was living in Atlanta, and I could only afford, it was like 300 400 bucks a month, and I was in low-income housing. And I was the youngest person probably by about 60 years. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Got it. Okay. Yeah. There was like cribbage nice. that right. happened down right. in the lobby and okay. everything else. So you probably learned what how to play bridge and uh, yeah, yeah. Was, and that all, was one of the that, favorites. All that good stuff. Yeah. So I was studying for my series seven right there in this 300 square foot apartment. I could open the door, open the fridge, flush the toilet, all laying in my bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice feature. Yes. It didn't have to move much. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, huh. yeah, so I was studying for the Series 7 right there. And um, so I went and probably knocked on every brokerage firm's door. Right. Right? Because I'm, I'm an up-and-comer. Yeah, right. right? I have a finance yeah, just, degree from got, right, University, University of Florida. Florida. Right. And I didn't even know what the hell I was getting myself into, to be honest with you. I just knew my dad like broke his back working hard manual labor. Right. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to wear a suit. I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. I want to do something where you wear a suit. I want to wear a suit. I want to look good yeah. when I go to the office. You could have been an accountant. I could have. Yeah. I could yeah, have. I could. That was a little bit too boring. Yeah, that's... I, right. I wanted it... Like, I could say it put you in a box. That wouldn't work. Yeah. My first experience in this business was god-awful. It was so bad. <laughs> what did you do? Oh, I just sat in this black room and just picked up the phone and just... Dialed bugged, people. Yeah, bugged people said, all got, day long. I got this great product for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, got, I was like, oh, I want to help people. And then all I'm doing is bugging people. <laughs> like, Everyone's what? pissed at me. Yeah, but I, I'm wearing a sharp suit. I thought I was going to help people. Yeah. It was like... From Kohl's. It was Sonny, like, why are you calling me again? Yeah. Yep. I had a probably a couple hundred dollars in my name, right? I went to Kohl's, got myself a nice, you know. You wear 70, the same suit every day? $70 suit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Two white shirts. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. It was good times. It was good times. I think I start when I started in the CPA world, I think I had two suits. Did you? Alternated every day. Yeah. And then I could, I, I, that's when I had a better memory. And I can remember what suit I wore for what client. So I made sure I didn't. Switch it up. Yeah, yeah. Switch it up. Yeah, right. Yeah. Then, so my girlfriend moves to Atlanta, right, at the time. And then she was going to be an expiring actress. Okay. And so she goes on a couple auditions. And so now we're living together in this 200 square foot, you know, right? If you want to. Right. She's flushing a toilet. It's like right there. <laughs> that's, that's why you broke it, up. It You're was close, close quarters, man. <laughs> it was really close quarters. Yeah. Oh, it was awful. So we lasted maybe a month living together. Right. And, and so she's going on these auditions to be this model, right? Yeah. And then so she's like, well, I, I, don't, I don't really know if I'd like Atlanta. And I was like, thank God. <laughs> Because I hate this place. No offense to anyone that lives in Atlanta. Because I've heard, I've never been, I've heard good things about the downtown area. Yeah. Buckhead, you know, was really cool. Yeah. A lot of fun. A lot of bars, I guess. Yeah, you know, okay. You know, it was you young, couldn't afford them. Oh, yeah, if you could afford them. <laughs> <laughs> I got slits. You got, and I'm laying in my bed slits, drinking slits. Slits in your bed. Yes. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Then you wouldn't finish it. You'd drink the other half the next night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was so gross. <laughs> yeah. So she went on this audition. She's like, yeah, well, they told me to like kind of hike up my skirt, and I was supposed to like growl at this guy. Really? And I was like, was, like, was he wearing a shirt? <laughs> what, I mean, what kind of audition was this? <laughs> well, no, it was kind of in his apartment. Oh, he had a no. studio. I was like, oh, boy. Jeez. So, yeah, she left to Atlanta. I moved back to Minnesota. Then I got a job mm -hmm. with one of the largest financial planning firms in Minnesota, and then I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. And How so, long were you in Minnesota after you? I don't know. This story's getting really long. Holy God. Yeah, we get a whole segment. Yeah, right here. My life story, Joe Anderson. 
So, yeah, this is the paper, the dissertation <laughs> that my little cousin wrote. You just went through this. Yeah, yeah. I just went through just it. Just read the, what, yes. what was the Gazette? Yes, the, yeah, the, yeah, the Annadale Gazette. Annadale I don't know. Gazette. Whatever. Look it up on the internet. Yeah, we'll get it. Get Joe Anderson's history. <laughs> yeah, it's my little cousin. She's graduating high school, so nice. whatever. Okay. But, yeah, um, I was in Minnesota for maybe a year. Then I got promoted to be a VP um, of one of the largest financial planning firms. And then I moved to Wisconsin. And then, then I realized about conflicts of interest right. with a big, large, you know, Fortune 50, Fortune 500. I don't know. Yeah. It was like Fortune 50 company. Okay. Everyone kind of knows their name. You probably have a credit card with their name on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, it was a financial advisor unit of that company. Yes, got it. And I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. It didn't, didn't, didn't kind of jive with No, I, I mean, I was young. I was making good money. But it was like I just had to, you know, recruit and teach these other guys to, to sell their stuff. Right. And um, so I said, enough of this. Yeah. It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions, courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia, and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com, or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or ellen.clopine at purefinancial.com. Couple good ones here today. All right. So let's see here. How about this one? Can I gift my entire Roth IRA account to a grandchild and roll all of the tax-free accumulation over to them? Or would I have to physically make qualifying and or basis withdrawals to set up a new Roth account in the grandchild's name? Oh, that's interesting. Well, you don't want to do that because, well, first of all, you cannot gift a Roth IRA because it's... Uh, it's 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 in the family of individual retirement accounts. A Roth is an individual retirement account that actually has a tax-free feature. So you you it's it's your account. You can't give it to anybody. Actually, the best thing to do in this case is to have the grandchild be the beneficiary, so that when you do pass away, the grandchild takes over your position in the Roth, and it's still tax-free to him or her. That's that's the way to go. Right, because there is no required minimum distribution in Roth IRAs. So if you're thinking, hey, I have this Roth IRA, want to give the account to my grandchild. Well, unless he's looking to give him cash now, but it looks like he wants to take distributions and setting up a Roth IRA account for his grandchild. Right. And you, yeah. it, it will be the grandchild's at one point, like Al said, if you named him or her the beneficiary of the account. And so let's say you have another 20 years of life. You keep on, you know, th- that money's going to continue to compound tax-free. You don't have to pull that money out. You name the grandchild the beneficiary of that account, and then the grandchild would be the beneficial owner or the inheritor of that account. So it's called an inherited IRA. Maybe you've heard of the stretch IRA. And so what that does is it allows now, so it would still stay in that person's name, whatever's name is for the benefit yes. of the grandchild. And then that grandchild then will have to take distributions out of that Roth IRA, even though there's not a required minimum distribution for the account holder, there would be a required minimum distribution for the beneficiary, yeah, even though they're the beneficial owner, but the, the, the deceased is still the owner of the account. Yeah, and that's I think that's a lot of people don't really realize that. With that Roth IRA, if it's your own Roth, 
Or if your spouse dies and you put it in your name, you don't have to take your the distributions. You can let it grow your whole life. But once the non-spouse beneficiary gets it, you have to take required distributions every year, regardless of your age. You, you could be under 10 years of age and still have to take a required distribution. Of course, it's based upon your life expectancy. So the younger you are, the less it is. So now, if the, yeah, it's, if, it's a fraction of a right, percent. Right. That, so if, the, if, if you want to get to this to the grandchild, clearly you said, up the beneficiary statement for the grandchild. If you want to get money to the grandchild and you don't have any other sources, then you can pull it out of the Roth and give it to the child, let's say for college or something like that. But there's really no way to put it into the grandchild's name while you're living. Another uh, quick note here, too. You need earned income to create a Roth IRA. Sure. So the grandchild would need to be working. Uh, W-2 wage, 1099, pay Social Security tax, up to 5500 bucks. Then you could do a full contribution to the grandchild. So if the grandchild's working, but there's all sorts of kind of funny webs in this question, because it's like, well, hopefully, if he's given this money to the grandchild, you would think he's got other assets or she's got other assets, sure. right? Right. So it sounds like, well, do I have to take these tax-free withdrawals from my Roth to fund another Roth? So he's thinking, like, it has to go to Roth to Roth. Yeah, for the pay. grandchild. Yeah. No. If the grandchild has earned income, keep your Roth in the Roth. And then let's say he's got a paper route or something like that, or she does, then that grandparent could contribute $5,500 into a Roth IRA. He could, he could, or she could establish, the grandparent could establish the grandchild a Roth account and fund it for the grandchild, but the grandchild would need earned income. That's the caveat. Yeah, they would, and and it's a dollar for dollar. So you can fund it up to $5,500, but the grandchild has to have $5,500 of earned income. If the grandchild just has 1000 bucks, then that's the, the most you can put into a Roth for that year. So I guess for um, the holidays coming up or 4th of July this summer, you know, those are good gifts to give to grand, uh, grandchildren. Yeah, wonderful gifts, yeah. So if they don't have a, a, a Roth IRA, and if they're working over the summer, maybe they're in school, maybe they're even in college. Most college kids have some sort of part-time job. Well, I don't know. I had a, seemed like a full-time job. <laughs> well, maybe not. I don't know. I guess they don't. Right, well, right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But if they have any type of employment, you can establish a Roth IRA for them, and you can fund it. Um, and then that would grow tax-free for the grandchild's life. It's a huge deal. It's a great um, strategy for a lot of you that are listening. You can fund kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, friends, family, whatever. As long as that person... The, the IRS doesn't care where the money comes from. Right. Right. As long as they have earned income. They earn 5500 They spend every last dime of it on comic books. All right. Well, you can still put the 5500 in to their account from your checking account. But I guess if they're spending 5500 on comic books. May not be the best. Yeah. So uh, here's something, Joe, though. Right. Let's say you do. Let's say that this grandparent does this and, yeah. and starts funding the grandchild's Roth, for, Roth with uh, their own money because the grandchild has earned income. Great. So now... 10 years, 20 years, whatever, the grandparent passes away. Now the grandchild inherits the Roth. The tendency probably is, well, I already got a Roth. Let me put grandma's or grandpa's money into my Roth because that would simplification, right? But you can't do that. Right. You got to be very careful with that. We've seen this quite often because with any other asset, let's say I inherit an IRA, a brokerage account, and a house, right? So grandpa died, grandma died. They left me a small 
IRA. They had some stocks in a brokerage account in their primary residence, and I was the beneficiary of all three of those assets. So myself, I have a brokerage account, I have an IRA, and I also have a Roth IRA, right? And so you would say, okay, well, let's distribute these assets. So let's sell the house, okay? House cash. What do I do with that cash? I put it into my brokerage account and I invest in my mutual funds, right? Okay, so they have a brokerage account. You know what? Let's just take those stocks that they already had. Let's just transfer those into my brokerage account. Everything's great. I'm consolidating and keeping this clean. Oh, and then they got this IRA. Sounds great. Let's cash, you know, let's take the IRA and like move it right into my IRA. Right. That's where it blows up. You cannot do that. It's an individual retirement account. And the reason why you can't do that is the IRS wants their taxes. They either want it while you're alive, they're going to force the money out once you turn 70 and a half. And if you pass away with it, they still want to get their taxes because it's a tax deferred account. Right. And let's say if I'm 40 years old and grandma dies and I put that into my IRA, well, I have 31 years basically to let all of that money still continue to grow tax deferred until I turn 70 and a half. Right. They're not liking that. So they have to keep it in that decedent's name to take those yeah. distributions it's, out on the non-spouse beneficiary. That's a good point. I mean, think about it. So the grandparent is is on a regular IRA or 401k, forced to take the money out at 70 and a half. And all of a sudden, they pass away, goes to grandchild who's 10 years old. They'd have to wait another 60 years to get tax money. Well, they don't allow that. That's right. So they want that 10-year-old to start taking distributions because grandma or grandpa was already taking distributions. Exactly. Or even if they even pass- if they prior to yeah. their distribution they, date. It they, doesn't matter. Right. They still want the money. Right. Yeah. And so then it's based on that grandchild's life expectancy. So if it's a 10-year-old, I guess the parents are actually going to be taking those distributions for that 10-year-old. Get social with Your Money, Your Wealth and Pure Financial Advisors. Follow us on Twitter at YMYW Show. To connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Google+, just search for Pure Financial Advisors. Got a few more emails, Alan. Okay. And then we'll uh, pack this pony up up, and get the hell out of here. Okay. I bought a stock in 2013. It is nothing but a total loser. (laughs) It's down 70%, and I see no solution other than to sell it for income tax purposes and deduct my losses. Okay. I bought it for $100,000, and it's now worth $35,000. Okay. Is selling a good idea? Well, <laughs> certainly. Now, a couple couple things. From a tax standpoint, yes, uh, because you would generate a $65,000 capital loss. You can use that loss against any other capital gains. Hopefully, you bought a couple stocks that went up. And if you want to sell some of those, that would net against those gains dollar for dollar. If you don't have any other gains, then you get to take $3,000 per year, carry forward, it carries forward the rest of your life. And, and when you do eventually have a stock sale gain or mutual fund sale gain, you can use it against that. But I think from an investment standpoint, I think you got to sit there and say, would I buy this stock today for $35? And if the answer is no, you should sell it. And then, of course, then you could take it another layer is do you really want to be investing in individual stocks? And we talked about this in the first hour. It's, uh, well, individual stocks, you certainly can make the most money if you hit it right, but you also have the most risk. And here's an example of the risk part. So uh, we uh, we are big believers in, as Joe sometimes says, kind of a boring approach uh, to investment that has higher probabilities where you probably won't go down 70%. You know why he let this thing go down 70%? Because he was waiting to get his money back. It's called anchoring. 
anchoring. Anchoring, yes. Anchoring. Yeah. He anchored on his price that he bought it. Yes. Yeah, right? He, so he, he was down 10%. He's like, ooh. I want to wait till it gets back. I, it's going to get back up. Then I'm going to sell it. Oh, yeah. down 20%. No, I'm going to wait because I know this thing's going to go back up. Now it's up 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%. Because people anchor on that stupid price. Right. And it's like, there's no way I'm going to sell this thing until it comes back. And then he finally writes into Investopedia and says, all right, do I write this thing off as a tax loss? <laughs> so uh, it is it is a tax loss. That does help. But but would you buy that stock today at, 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 at $35,000 worth? And if so... Right. Would you buy that stock price today? If yeah. you had an extra $100,000, would you put it on that stock? Yeah. If the answer is yes, well, maybe... Hold on. Hold on. Why not? If the answer is no. Well, you answered your question. <laughs> okay, let's see. Well, let me. There was a. There's got a, another good one. Yeah, I think so. No, this might last us. Um, here's an interesting one. Okay. Um, well, there's two questions, and the first one's quick and easy. Uh, second one um, is common mistakes that maybe some of or or misunderstandings that that most of you might have. So let me go to the first one first. I understand that IRAs do not receive a basis step up upon death, but rather the beneficiary will pay ordinary income tax on the distributions at their rate. Okay. My question, true. therefore, is therefore, what section of the code says this? I've already looked in ten fourteen. And I'm basically out of ideas. <laughs> what code section says that? It's pub publication 590. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's the one on IRAs. I don't know what the code section would be. I don't know why you'd really care that much about it. Well, he but doesn't believe whoever told him. Apparently not. He wants to see it <laughs> He's for himself. It. He's got to see it. Yeah. Well, just go to pub 590 and I'll tell you all about it. Yeah. It's issued by the IRS. See, there you go. Well, look at that. A, a, a tax question, and you knew the answer. I am not a tax advisor. I do not have a tax license. I'm not a CPA. Please do not take any of the things that I say and take it as a grain of salt. This yeah. is not an advice show. This is for your entertainment purposes only. I think people already don't take us seriously anyway. So, All right. Is that it on that question? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. He's a stickler. <laughs> he wants to know the code section. So you, I know, if, I know a few code sections. If you want to sell real estate and defer the gain, a rental real estate, ten thirty one exchange, ten thirty one. If you want to sell a life insurance, uh, if you want to get out of life insurance product into another one, it's ten thirty five exchange wow. without paying taxes. Look, look at the big brain of big out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple code sections in there. Yeah. All right. How about this one? I'm leaving my job with an employer sponsored four one k plan. I want to roll over to a traditional IRA without cashing out anything. I have approximately $160,000 in the 401k. I already have a Roth IRA with about $17,000. Okay. What happens when I roll over my 401k? Can I still contribute to my Roth up to the $6,500 for the year? Or do I have to stop for the year due to adding the money into the new retirement account? Okay, great question. I have to sort of, I go two different directions. One is if you take your 401k and you roll it into an IRA, well, there's no tax consequence. Of course, you can still make your Roth contribution if you have earned income, 
right? And you're and you're below the income limitation rules, which uh, what are they, Joe? If you're single, it's got to be below one hundred thirteen thousand. One hundred thirty-two thousand. One hundred thirteen. Oh, yeah, that's a... or one hundred seventeen to one thirty-two. Yes, is the phase-out period married? I think it's one eighty-six to one ninety-six, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was one eighty-four, one ninety-four last year. So, yeah, right. So, uh, but the way he's asking it, it almost sounds like he wants to take his four hundred one k and put it in a Roth IRA. No, but I didn't see that. I did as a possibility, uh, and <laughs> I think you're just stretching this question out. <laughs> and I don't know that I'd do that because now you're creating one hundred sixty thousand of extra income over and above your salary for whatever the salary is that year. If you were to do that, though, um, interestingly enough, the, if you do a big Roth conversion, it doesn't count against you for those income limitation rules. That's right. Where's what I want, where I want to go with that? Got it. Yep. And so, therefore, you made a hundred thousand of salary. You do a hundred sixty thousand dollar Roth conversion. You're single, so your income is two sixty, but. Uh, it doesn't count for purposes of that that uh, income limitation, so you can still do a Roth contribution. Yeah, that's a that's a great fact that I think a lot of people don't really know. Um, so if if you listen to the show by I don't know maybe once or twice, you probably heard us say something about a Roth conversion. Imagine that, um, and then we get calls and emails and saying, "Hey, you know what, Joe, Al, you guys don't know what the hell you're talking about." I did the Roth conversion, but I still want to contribute to my Roth. So I did, you know, a $75,000 Roth conversion up to the top of my bracket. And so then I went to my CPA and I made the Roth contribution. And the CPA told me, hey, your income is too high. Right. So then I had to back out my Roth contribution. And I was like, no, fire your CPA. <laughs> it's, it's Yeah, it's, it's modified adjusted gross income. It's not... It's not included in your income if you do a Roth IRA conversion. It doesn't show up in the calculation to figure out if you qualify for the income limitations of your contributions. But what he was saying, in my opinion, was that, all right, I put $160,000 into an IRA. So can I still put money into a Roth IRA? Right? And the answer is yes. Uh, yeah, of course. And, uh, or, or this question comes about, too. Is that all right? Well, here, let's say my taxable income as a married couple is fifty thousand dollars. The recommendation might be to say, all right, well, you're in the fifteen percent tax bracket. Convert twenty five thousand dollars to get to the top of that bracket, which is roughly seventy five grand. Yeah, for a married couple. For a married couple, so you could convert twenty five thousand dollars. And oh, by the way, you can still make a contribution. And they'll be like, no. Oh, what are you talking about? How can I get $25,000 into a Roth? I thought the limit was 5500 Right. Well, yes, that's for a contribution. This is a conversion. Different thing. Totally confused. What do you mean? I thought it was $5,500. you are telling me I'm $25,000? Oh, how big a penalty will I have? There's no penalty. No penalty. No penalty. Uh, we're out of here today. Hopefully next week, it's just not Big Al and I. We might have a guest. We'll see. So for Big Al Clopin, I'm Joe Anderson. Uh, show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll see you next week. So, to recap today's show, emerging markets are the place to be if you want a high-octane portfolio and don't mind really high risk. Investing in things that actually matter to you may serve your portfolio better in the long term. Big Roth conversions don't count towards income limitations for Roth contributions, and Joe and I both hate Atlanta. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your 
wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.